Amanda, a huge welcome to Leaders in Conversation. I'm delighted to be in conversation with you today and to find out more about you and your leadership. I'm really curious where it all started, your love of what you do now and what got you here. So business for me goes back a long, long way, um, most of the detail of which I, I won't bore you with. But essentially, when I finished university, um, I had a son and I knew that I didn't want to be working full time. I knew that having studied law, a legal career was going to be incredibly demanding and take me away from my son. So I thought, what shall I do instead? What shall I do instead? And so in the way that one does, I thought, I'll be a potter. (laughs) Amazing. (laughs) So I went off studied ceramics which I loved and I worked as a potter for for years actually and then um one day when I'd had two more children I'm a prolific breeder um what happened was I was getting ready for an exhibition and uh and I hand made all these pieces very tall very beautiful and um the process that I use uh, was called scraffito. So you get them to this leather hard stage, the pots, and then you scratch into them to make a beautiful design. And I had um, five pots made standing in my studio ready to do the design work. And the exhibition was the following week. And I went out and I came back and in the hallway were my two daughters standing with turning tools saying, Mummy, we know how stressed you are about the exhibition, so we've done the designs for you. <laughs> So I walked into my studio and there were five destroyed pots. I mean, totally destroyed. So I had to remake them. It was very stressful. And then I thought, you know what? This is something to come back to in later life. Mm -hmm. So I've put that on one side. And I suppose my life has been, my working life has been about following my instinct, doing things that really interest me. And if I decide as I'm doing it that this is not the right time or there's something else that I'd rather be doing or that I think is more doable, Mm. then I'll do that and understand that the knowledge that I've acquired as I've been trundling my way through life all adds to the business acumen that I have now, for example. It's from 35 years of basically being self-employed. I realise I'm pretty much unemployable at this stage and, um, and I'm delighted by that. Amanda, you've described yourself as somebody who absolutely knows when to stop when something isn't the right time for you for whatever reason. I also know you to be somebody who enjoys starting things, that not only you described yourself as a prolific breeder, you are a prolific (laughs) creator of many, many things. How do you manage with so many things, so many ideas to know which one is the right one to follow? I think it's an instinctive thing, actually. I think that some people thrive on a channel and they move along that channel and they know what they're doing and life is predictable. So they have their job, they have their career, that defines them, they define themselves in that very narrow sense, actually, and they pursue that. I've never been able to do that. I have a huge amount of interest in a 
a whole variety of different areas. And so what happens to me, I think, is usually in the wee small hours of the morning, my favourite time for thinking, I, I start to think about what I'm doing and how that can evolve into something else. Um, and that process of evolution is actually a really interesting thing for me. So, for example, I have been running Airs Apothecary for several years and it's a lovely company and we grow plants, we distill them ourselves, we make essential oils and aromatic waters and we turn those into really beautiful high-end skincare. What's been thrilling about that for me, I think, is that once you've learnt how to distill, I mean like really learnt how to distill properly using an old copper alembic, the traditional way of creating oils, the plant kingdom is your oyster. You can just choose whatever you want because you're not dependent on something that somebody else has produced. You can think to yourself, what do I want to achieve? Which plant do I want to use? Mm. Is it a scent thing? Is it a therapeutic thing? What is it? And then create from that. So that, that's actually quite an interesting thing because from that, once you really enter the plant kingdom and you're really excited by that, you suddenly realise there are all these other things that you can do so for me, for example, um, of recent times, I've been doing a lot of work on drinks. Mm. And although you wouldn't automatically think that drinks follow skincare, in fact, it's a beautiful marriage. Yes. Um, perfumery, that's another area that I'm very interested in. And again, all of these things fit together in a puzzle, but plants are at the key of all of it, because mm. plants are at the key of everything that I do. In all the different places I've lived, all the different things that I've done, plants have been the one theme that has flowed through every single part of it, except for law, of course, which is where I started, but very rapidly moved on from. <laughs> <laughs> you say that's where you started. I'm wondering, when you were a child, I certainly remember we, my sister and I, did this thing called poddling and we picked leaves and plants and would crush them and make them into potions which we would feed to our dolls to either make them better or because they tasted so delicious. Mm. Were you a child who played with plants, who enjoyed being in nature? Yeah, very much so. So where I grew up was in, in Fife in Scotland, oh. and our house was on the banks of the Firth of Forth, which is a huge river, uh, with um, Edinburgh on one side and Fife on the other. Anyway, my favourite joy, my total joy, was to um, climb over the fence at the end of our garden and then scale the sea wall, which was about 25 foot. <laughs> oh, wow. Go down onto the beach. And on the beach in Fife, in the Firth of Forth, it's not sand. It's not pebbles, mm. it's sludge. It's muddy, sludgy, squishy stuff. And I would spend hours and hours wandering through the squishy stuff, looking for bottles. And of course, because it was mud, things were preserved intact. So, mm. so I'd have bags full of things that I had found. And then from there, I'd go back up across, ditch my things, and then just walk out and across, across the hills, it was beautiful, and I've always found immense solace in nature. Mm. It's been a really important part of my life, and getting away from people and out up onto, well, when we lived in Sussex, out onto the Downs as a kid, out into the hills around where we lived, that's been a really important part of my life, actually, yeah. 
and somewhere that you've returned to by way of where you now live on the Isle of Harris. Yes, that was quite the move. Indeed. <laughs> Harris, Harris is an island, uh, I think it's about 70 miles off the, the coast of Scotland, small island. It is absolutely beautiful. Mm. I mean, it's absolutely beautiful. And a lot of people visit in summer and uh, these long white sandy beaches and the, the maca with the, all these wildflowers and it's staggering. But in winter, when everybody's gone and it's quiet and silent and dark, mm. so dark, I walk out every night and out up onto the maca and uh, just look at the sky. And the maca is? The maca is basically it's shell sand. So it's where the, the sea has blown the sand and over generations it has become productive. And so what you find on the Mecca are the most astonishing selection of wildflowers that I've ever seen in my life. I love it. I love it so much. So the first time I went there was six years... Well, no, actually, the first time I went there was when I was 16. But after that, the next time was about six years ago. I've got a photograph of myself that Susan Bell took where I was... I saw the Mecca and I had a, a hook in my hand for cutting. And I just skipped across it. I just skipped. It was just incredible, absolutely incredible. Mm. And it's an area of special scientific interest. And 75% of the world's maca is in Lewis and Harris. Amazing. Amazing. It is amazing. It's amazing. Such, a, such a beautiful place. Oh, it's beautiful. I have a real sense of that being a source of inspiration for you, not only when you were a child, but also now as an adult, that as a child you were skipping along perhaps not so skipping in the mud <laughs> but here you are now skipping along being really nourished by nature yeah I think that's a really interesting thing actually which is that in recent years of course I've lived in I lived in Sussex for mm. 28 years but in recent years I think that it's become so busy and mm. so different and pressure the pressure of work is really immense and I think because of that, having somewhere that is totally separate, where mm. people can't get to me unless I choose to be contacted, that works really, really yeah. well for me. Because what happens, I think, when you become overwhelmed by the sheer noise of a place, actually, and I don't mean mm. noise as in, you know, the sound of cars and all the rest of it, I mean the mental noise of living in a place. It's, it really stifles your creative flow. So for me, going up to Harris, which is a way, away away, I have never felt more creative, actually. <laughs> Lovely. A question that leaders often ask me, Amanda, is, I am an introvert. Do I need to be an extrovert in order to be able to lead? And I know you have described yourself as an introvert, and I think it would be helpful to those listeners who think of themselves like you as to what it means to be a leader in business and a leader of businesses and to be an introvert? I think that's actually a really interesting question. And I think introversion is, is sometimes misunderstood, actually. People assume that if you're introverted that you don't like social interaction, and that's not correct. They also assume that you don't like being in the limelight. And I think that part of it probably is true. I don't particularly like being in the limelight I'd especially like talking about myself, and I'm very private, although you'd never know it from this interview, but actually I am. 
And I think the thing about business is you have got to develop a skill set whereby you can go into a meeting and you can hold that meeting. Mm -hmm. And if you go in and you are not able to express because you feel anxious, you're going to really struggle. So for me, business has been about having two very separate personas, really. One is me privately at home. Mm -hmm. And actually the reason that I live in the middle of nowhere... And the other is how I am in business, and I'm a very different person in business. So if you have a meeting with me as a businesswoman, Mm. you'll find me clear and direct and not extroverted exactly, but able to articulate very Mm. clearly what I'm thinking. If you take me out of that business and I'm by myself, I'm on my own home turf, then actually I much prefer my own company. I like being solitary. I enjoy walking for miles with nobody and nothing to interfere with me. And I think it's a it's a very delicate balancing act. Mm. But I don't think that you can succeed in business unless you find a way of presenting to the world a confident, competent, outgoing persona. Mm. And I suppose that's not to say that you're pretending. You just have to make it be part of your being. Yes. And I think I've spent 35 years trying to make it part of my being. And I think maybe I'm pulling it off now. (laughs) (laughs) I think so. And my experience of you is that you are confident in the way that you've described. And I think of confidence being a part of resilience, two sides of the same coin. Are there times when you've had to be resilient as well as confidence. Definitely. Resilience is critical mm. to business. Resilience is critical to life, yes. actually. And the sooner you learn to become resilient, the easier life mm. will be for you. So for me, I mean, you know some of my personal I history, do. but you'll know that many years ago, my son died. That was actually a transformative moment for me, where I felt that I think for the first time, shaken to the core when something like that happens you suddenly realize that there are occasions when everything isn't going to work out well Mm. where things just aren't going to happen in the way that you hope they will and it Mm. is shattering actually so for me a really interesting thing happened where when my son died I was asked to talk at the school that my children were in to do some kind of service I can't remember what it was now anyway the head teacher at the time asked me if I would talk about God and uh, resurrection and life and all the rest of it. And I'm not a Christian and I don't believe that at mm. all. So I said to her, no, I'm not going to do that. But I will give a talk in the church to mm. the children, if you like. And I did. And the thing that I talked about was certainty of seasons. Mm. And that was a really, I think that's the way that I got through all of this stuff, is to think that when everything goes awful... And things will inevitably go horrible in some way, shape or form for everybody. You have to find something that gives you that knowledge that there will be another day. It will be okay. And for me, that was thinking um, night follows day. Always. It always does. Mm. The seasons will always follow each other. So when you're in the depth of winter and it's dark and cold and there's nothing much growing and it looks bleak outside, you know that spring will come. Mm. And the knowledge that spring will come gets you through the winter, gets me through the winter. Yes. 
So at times when things have been very, very challenging for me, the thing that I do always is I think there will be another season. Mm. Things will move on and I'll be okay. So that's what I do. And that's why I think resilience is important. Mm. Thank you. So finding your recommendation to other leaders at times of loss and or huge challenge are mm. uh, to find something that gives them some kind of hope. Hope and certainty. And certainty. Because what you lose when you're really stressed mm. or you're really frightened or you're really distressed mm. is certainty. Nothing yes. feels certain anymore. Nothing feels like it can ever be the same again. And that may be the case. It may mm. be that nothing will be the same again. Certainly nothing was the same for me again after mm. that point. But the certainty that season would follow season. Yes. That I could get up in the morning and... I would see gradually the light declining, gradually the light increasing. So to become aware of and in tune with the cycles of nature is massively empowering, actually. It makes you feel better. It also gives you, your, it gives you a really great knowledge of your position in the world. So you feel as though you're, you are your own world. But as soon as you start looking at nature and becoming part of that cycle, you realise, frankly, how irrelevant you are. You know, you're just not that important. And that's a really good thing to know as well, I think. Not to believe the hype that people may say about you. You have to hold on to something that you know that's certain. And knowing your place in the world, knowing your position in nature, knowing your understanding of the seasons, understanding about how the tides change and the moon changes. It's not hippie nonsense. It's actually about understanding yourself in this place. And I think that's really important. It's a lovely way of when everything is shaken apart and people may feel things are falling apart, to hold on to something that is in our grasp the land around us, the seasons, wherever we are in the world, whatever that season is, it's something to hold on that gives certainty. And I think that comes back in some way to this question of introversion as well. Yeah. I think if you have a, an introverted nature, it means that you don't look to other people to shore yourself up. Mm. What you do is you draw on something within yourself. And for me, drawing on something within myself is about me in relation to nature and if you rely on other people to give you your status or to make you feel as though you are important then you'll fail because at some point people will drop away or change or things will happen in their lives which means that they can't deal with you in the same way so don't do that Mm. don't rely on other people to shore you up shore yourself up give yourself Things. It doesn't matter what it is, but things that are not other people that make you feel strong. Because those are the things when times get tough that you will turn to. And other people just won't do it. Amanda, as a leader in, uh, of and in a number of businesses, I know that you're very committed to team working, to building teams and to teams working collaboratively. It'd be great to hear more about how you do that. Okay, so what I believe really strongly is that teamwork is critical to good business. If you're driving a business along 
and you don't bring your stuff with you, the people you work with you, it will fail. Mm. Or what you'll have is this awful disparity where it's an us and a them, and you don't want an us and a them. It's just not, it's not intelligent. It's not an intelligent way of working. What I did was I got a big sheet of paper and I wrote down every single thing that I did. And then I worked out what things I needed help with, what things I was not particularly good at, admin, what things I didn't enjoy doing, and what things would release me to do the things that I'm good at and that I enjoy. And then I employed people who could do those jobs. The beauty of that is, if you employ people who can do the things that you can't, who enjoy the jobs that you don't, then you're liberated and they love it. Mm. So I have a policy that I never micromanage, ever. I think if you employ people to do a job, then you trust that they will do that job. That doesn't mean that you don't generally oversee, of course sure. you do, but you don't drill down into the detail of what people are doing because you've employed them because you don't want to do that, and they're good at it. Yes. So my strategy in my businesses has been to give people their head. Mm. And if they identify training that they need, I have them trained. Mm. If they need time off for whatever reason, they have time off. We have a very reasonable ethos in the way that we work. So most people know how to do each other's jobs within our businesses. And that means that if somebody needs to be off for some reason someone else can jump in and do the job. And that's, that feels like a really important thing to me. And what happens is if you trust people and you give them their head and you train them properly and you pay them properly, yes. not the minimum wage, you pay them either the living wage or above and we pay above, then that means that they feel good. Mm -hmm. They come into work and they're happy. I come into work and I'm happy. <laughs> and the whole thing rumbles along really, really nicely. And what I've found in, in my businesses, certainly AS Apothecary, which I suppose is our, you know, my key business, mm. is all the people who have come to me, who've been drawn to me, to work with me, have been women. Mm. And all of those women have been pretty much over 45. And I love that. I love that for several reasons. I love that because... When I'm opening and shutting the window because I'm either too hot or too cold, we're all doing the same thing and that's absolutely <laughs> fine. So there's a certain synchronicity to our, to our relative heat. So that's been great. Uh, we like the same music, so that means there's never an argument in the workshop about what's being played. But much more than that, when you work with women that are older, mm. they have lived a life and they mm. know what they're doing and they're loyal and they are resilient. Yes. If you've lived a life it doesn't matter whether you've been principally at home looking after your children or mm. whether you've been out doing other jobs. It all works in the same way, in my opinion. I think what it does is it, it creates people who know what they're doing. And if they don't know what they're doing, they say they don't and they ask for help. Mm. And that's great because what you want in business are people who will tell you if they're struggling 
so that you can help them before it becomes an issue within the company. You want people who, if they've made a mistake, they'll say, I've made a mistake. Yes. And instead of feeling they're going to be scolded or chastised or punished, you say, what do we need to do to stop that mistake happening again? Is it a question of training? Is it a question of you being exhausted? What is it? And then you resolve it. Mm. And that way, I think you create a business that is really sustainable. Not sustainable in that I can identify the carbon footprint of every item in our shop, although I probably can actually. Sustainable in the way that people don't leave. They want to work for Airs Apothecary and they want to continue working for Airs Apothecary. And that's a lovely, lovely thing. What you've described, Amanda, is a business in which people want to learn, grow and develop and that you are truly committed to them doing that themselves, but also that they want to learn, grow and develop the business with you and with each other. You've severally mentioned the importance of people helping each other. Yeah. And is that part of your ethos when you describe your business to people that it's one in which people help each other mm. seek to help each other yeah that's really important there was a really interesting conversation i had with someone a week ago and we were talking about training staff training and he said to me of course if you train your staff then you empower them to leave you they're doing a job and you train them then they'll go and look for a job somewhere else because they know they can get better pay somewhere else and I thought about this and I thought, that's just nonsense. If you don't train people because you're frightened they're going to leave you, well, then they should leave you anyway. Absolutely. Because you're a clot. What you need to do, actually, is to say, how can I make this person feel better within our own organisation, more effective within our own organisation, and able to do more? Absolutely. And the answer is, you find out what interests them. And then you encourage them along in that way. And that does mean collaboration with other people. Collaboration is great. It's great. I think there's a really interesting thing that, I've, that I think about a lot, and it's to do with competition. I was given some advice ages ago where somebody said to me, you know, in the beauty industry, it's so cutthroat and competitive. That's true, it is. What you need to do is to be constantly monitoring what everybody else is doing so that you know what everyone else is doing. And if you do that, then that means that you can get ahead of the game. Or if they're doing something really good, then you can copy that. And I just thought, well, that's a stupid idea. Why would I want to know what everybody else is doing? It's got nothing to do with what I'm doing or what I'm interested in. And so what we do is, or what I do really, <laughs> it's not we, it's an I, is I, I do whatever feels right. Yes. So there's another part to this, which is instinct. Mm. You have to trust your instinct. You have to develop your instinct and you have to trust it. And so when I'm thinking about what I'm going to be doing, I might do something that seems quite counterintuitive, but my instinct tells me it's the right direction to go in. And that can be in all kinds of different ways. It could be in terms of collaborations with people that might not seem logical, but in my head they are, and I make them work. So we've got a collaboration that actually I just started two or three days ago. Where living up in Harris, it is, of course, replete with tweed. <laughs> it's everywhere. And, and I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to work with a, an independent weaver mm. and have her, it's a woman again, have her create some things that are just for us, just for Ayers Apothecary. Super. And I was thinking about that last night, actually. And I was thinking, the beauty of this is, what most people do is they think, 
I want to extend the range of what I do. I want to tread outside of the, the core of my business. Mm. And then they go and buy stuff in. So they'll go to a huge trade fair and they'll find whatever it is and they'll bring that back and put it in their shop. Or they'll go and look for, I don't know, they'll go and look for something that they're interested in and bring that back into their shop. But what I have done always and continue to do, and this Harris Tweed thing is a, is a, the most recent iteration of that, is I think, who's doing something really, really interesting, mm. really different? And who's a small maker who I can support? Because as a small business, in fact, as a micro business, if you don't support other micro businesses, especially now, especially in these economic times, we all stand to fail. So instead of buying something from a trade fair that's been brought in from China or wherever, pay a bit more, Mm. find an independent maker and work with them. And the reward of that is that what they produce for you is not going to be found anywhere else. And it's beautiful. And you keep them in business. Mm. And I think that collaboration in that sense, in terms of supporting each other's businesses, is hugely important. I think striking up these partnerships, as you've described, is so, so important. Helping each other, supporting each other and committing to each other's success. So I really wish you well in that partnership and many of the others. Thank you very much. It's fun. Exactly. Maybe that's something we should just touch on. Absolutely. Business is fun. It's really good fun. I get up in the morning and think, what shall I do today? I mean, what shall I do today? There's so many things. And it's really enjoyable. And if you have a team around you who are supportive who are interesting and interested in what you do. Mm -hmm. And you give them their head so that they can start making suggestions about different directions you can go in, making connections for you. Absolutely. How much stronger is your business for that? And how much more enjoyable is it? It's just great, actually. There's things that I can think of myself, and frankly, there's far too many of those. In fact, my husband said to me, I don't know if this is appropriate for this, but I'm going to say it anyway. My husband said to me, when I die on my tombstone, he's going to have engraved, could this be her final career change? (laughs) (laughs) I so love that. Anyway, so there's things that I can think of myself. But then if you have a team of 10 or 15 people... Think how much more they bring to the party. All their connections, all their knowledge, Mm. all their enthusiasm. Amanda, somewhat jocularly, you've mentioned what your husband would have inscribed on your tombstone. (laughs) (laughs) I am really curious about what you would like your legacy to be and the lasting impact on the world of, of you, the way you work and of your businesses, and that you would like to leave behind that would make a difference? That's a really challenging question, isn't it? There's something I'm very uncomfortable about with the idea of legacy. I'm just trying to identify what it is in my head that's discomforting about it. I think I rather like the idea that when you're dead, you're gone. You're just done. You know, Mm. you've done your stuff, and then you're great compost. I really like that. Yes. I suppose one of the things that I feel really strongly about, and and actually it's a curious thing, is how women feel about themselves, particularly how older women feel about Mm. themselves. So the beauty industry is awful. It's dreadful. Provokes fear and anxiety in older women of ageing, which is disgraceful. And in younger women, it provides uh, a benchmark that is simply unattainable. 
And that has made me furious for years and years and years. Now, the curiosity is that I am in the beauty industry. That is one of the things that I'm in. But I'm accidentally in it. I yes. never intended to be in the beauty industry. My background is therapeutic, so it's, it's basically plant work mm -hmm. of various forms. And I was asked to become part of the beauty industry by Imelda Burke at Content Beauty in Marylebone. And she asked me if she could sell my products as beauty products. I had been making them for my patients for eczema and psoriasis and all kinds of things like that for skin health, mm. because skin health was the thing that really interested me. So after I finished laughing, I thought, okay, I'll do that. Sent the products off, they sold really well, and the whole thing grew from that, actually, my entry into the beauty industry. But I still feel that the beauty industry is disgraceful. I still feel that the products that women are using on their skin on the whole are awful. The whole idea that you can stop the aging process by creating anti-aging products mm -hmm. makes me livid. Why are we talking about anti-aging? We age. Yes. It's great. I'm happier at 55 than I was at 35 and infinitely happier than I was at 15. And my skin shows it. I've got smile lines around my eyes. I've got creases around my mouth from smiling. Great. Your face shows your life. And that's something to be proud of. Not something that you want to reverse with fillers and hyaluronic acid and all that other rubbish that women are subjecting themselves to time and time again. And I feel as though since I've been in the beauty industry, I have been fighting that battle yes. and continue to fight that battle. Because although things are changing a bit and there is the idea now of green beauty, natural beauty, it has been largely repossessed by, by the ungreen massive producers who are desperately trying to grab onto that idea of green beauty and naturalness because they know it sells not because they're committed to it. It's because it sells. It's about profit. Yes. And that makes me really, really cross. Mm. So I think I hope that my legacy in the end is that women like you and I can sit around mm. with our very wrinkles, but very healthy skin <laughs> and feel happy. <laughs> thank you, Amanda. I hope so too. And thank you very, very much for our conversation today. My pleasure, Annie. Lovely to be here. If you would like to be part of Leaders in Conversation, please do get in touch via my website, annietownend.com. To find out more about Amanda and her business, do visit asapoth.com.